The less you breathe, the cooler it will stay in the room. <gasps> so yes, somewhere a table is mess- missing its cloth. But I'll just tell you, it was on the sale rack. So I buy all my clothes. Somebody paid full price for this. But it wasn't me. Yay! Um, wait, a couple things. Put it on my hand. Uh, I don't even know what that means. No. No, I got I, one thing I, I remember, but I've got something else above that, and I don't even know what it means. But Oh, oh, the apologetics class. Oh, okay, so our apologetics class... <laughs> I'm like, a pole. What does that mean? I'm going to go dancing tonight. Anyway. (laughs) This is not going to be on the video. What did you say? Not in this outfit? Is that what you said? Okay. Uh, Apologetics class this Wednesday night. Uh, If you came last week and it all went over your head, sorry. Come again. Uh, That's a lot of philosophy. This week is going to be much more hands-on, ground-level. So come, we're going to talk about Jesus, uh, evidence for Jesus uh, actually existing, and evidences for the resurrection is what we're talking about, the apologetics class. uh, 6.30 Wednesday night, so don't just write it off. Secondly, uh, Cinderella's Closet was was so amazing that Santa Maria High actually asked them to come and do Cinderella's Closet there. Great, right? Yay! So... Uh, Jesse just let me know this morning that a week from Thursday, right, a week from Thursday, uh, they don't have the time yet, she'll know tomorrow, so it'll be in the email update this week, but uh, they're going over and setting up over at Santa Maria High School, so if any of the kids from, you know, from Pioneer or even Regetti or anybody missed it, it's going to be there, and those kids can all come out and kind of shop with them, some dresses there. If you would like to help uh, in any part of that, maybe, you know, getting dresses over and setting up and doing that stuff, at the Welcome Center in the back, just let them know, because they're going to be, what in the world is this? Just say, I want to sign up to help at Cinderella's Club on that Thursday, and they'll take your name, and we'll get it over to Jessa, and you guys can, you know, help and get all that done. It's awesome. Now, last night I got before we start is, this is uh, Corey Hobibian and his family. I don't know why it's so washed out. It's like they took one of those old photos and boop, whatever. Anyway, uh, Corey Hobibian and his family, they are some uh, missionaries that we are supporting. They, they're actually, and the way we like to support missionaries is when they do church planting work. And so they are actually going to Ireland on April 30th to be church planters in Ireland. And you may think, why Ireland? Because Ireland has a very small Christian population. And one of the best ways that actually gets the further uh, furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ is through church plants. And so they are going there to start a church planting effort. Uh, and in the back, if you would like, uh, you can sign up. They're not going to send you things that ask you for money. What they're going to do is send you their weekly update that tells you what's happening, where they're at. And then they're starting a thing called 30 Days of Prayer. And that uh, starts on Tuesday, and every day they'll send you a little thing about what to pray for about Ireland, and it all leads up to when they leave to go over there to plant churches. So if you would like to sign up for that, you can just sign up in the back, and we will send them uh, your names and stuff. And again, they're not going to ask you for money and stuff, but they just like to keep you in the loop since Element does support them in their church planting work. Right? People ask me, why are you wearing long sleeves? It'll make sense. Uh, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I make very bad jokes. 
Sorry. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. But if you have a smartphone, you don't have to shut it off. You can download an app. That app is called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. Or if you're watching on video, 9454-5558. And it will bring us up by that. And you'll get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and all that goes along with this morning's message. So stand with me. Read to God's Word and we will get started. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I want you to repeat that with me. I'll give you a countdown, so you know, okay, one, two, three. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, one more time without my prompting. Blessed are the Excellent. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand the mercy that you have bestowed upon us and that we would live lives of great mercy that reflect who you are and that all that your children do would be of great honor to you. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So we are in the Sermon on the Mount, week eight. Uh, Matthew 5, 7, I think is convicting for any person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they themselves will be shown mercy. And the idea is that we receive that mercy from God. I've got a lot to get through today, so we're going to kind of jump in. Uh, the root for the word merciful or mercy comes from this Greek word called elios. Everybody say elios. You're all scholars. You're amazing. There are so many different dimensions to this word. Uh, When it refers to man talking to other men, it means this exercising of the virtue of mercy, showing oneself merciful. When it refers to God towards men, that this word does, it talks about all the providence of God throughout the ages, and then the specific providence of God in in the mercy and clemency of Jesus coming and dying and rising from the dead, for our sins. When it refers to Jesus, it points to the mercy of Christ, where he grants believers with eternal life, and on a level of people who believe and follow Jesus, it's this idea that we're supposed to live lives of mercy because we understand we have first been given mercy, and then we live that out with our hands. We could call this compassion and action going hand in hand. That's how we would say it. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, he would have compassion plus action in mind. First, his compassion and action where he comes and he saves us and then we understand that mercy given to us and we extend it in compassion and action to those around us. There is compassion towards the afflicted in our world around us. Now open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. What I'm going to do is illustrate the worst case scenario of who we are and the mercy that has been extended to us and the best way I can do that is from Ephesians chapter 2 because I'm going to show you what God's mercy looks like after I tell you how horrible we are. Uh, in Ephesians 2, we see the basic premise of the Christian faith, how we go from death into life, how we go from separation into connection. Ephesians 2, it is very clear, it's straightforward, but we got to receive it because it can be very hard, especially because it relates to the ideas of mercy. Uh, there is a myth that people think that if we can only just get the truth out there, then everyone's going to love the truth and believe the truth. The Bible is under no such illusions. A lot of people today, they don't reject the truth because they don't understand it, they simply don't like it. It's a heart issue. It's a moral issue. Same thing comes down to the ideas of mercy. In Ephesians 2, it can be very offensive to certain people. But I personally love Paul's words. I love the phrases he uses. I love his language. And so don't resist what he says and come up with reasons why it doesn't apply to you. It applies to all of us. You've got to listen to what God says. Again, it's not whether we like it or not. It's whether it is true. There are lots of things in this world I don't like. It doesn't make them untrue. I do not like that Justin Bieber still is selling CDs. But it doesn't make it untrue. I don't like that in a matter of country I go to visit. For some reason, they think pickles are the perfect condiment to put on the plate. I don't like it. 
but it doesn't make it untrue. And when you come to the scriptures, it's so much deeper than that. The Bible story is that there is one God and he is not you. He is loving and gracious and powerful and good. He makes everything in the universe, including you and I. He makes men and women in his likeness. He gives us a world to enjoy. He intends for us to live in freedom and union with him and with other people. We're supposed to have this life that's marked by joy and love and grace and mercy. This is the idea when you look at the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. You have these people. They are naked, no shame, eating fruit. Sweet. Not me, right? But, you know, that's, that, that's the picture. I'm wearing the tablecloth, all right? So when we look at our world today, we realize it's not like Genesis 1 and 2. Something's wrong with it. It doesn't add up. We don't live forever. We die. We don't have perfect health. We get sick. Everyone lies. You have contracts and lawyers and courts and magistrates, and they mitigate what is true and what is false because people are no longer good for their word. People don't love each other. They use each other. I mean, any idea of evolution that we're making forward progress should be gone at this point. A hundred years ago, we had less crime. I mean, I don't believe in evolution. I believe in devolution. I don't think we came from monkeys, but we're going there. So I think it's happening. And this is the idea of where Ephesians chapter 2 starts. It, re- it reminds us that there are not good guys and bad guys. There is just us guys, just us, and Jesus. Jesus is good, and we are like everybody else. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and it starts and says, And you. Who is he talking about? Us. Someone in the second service said, You. And I go, No. <laughs> us. All of us. In verse 3, he says, We all. When we think of like vile, nasty, mean people, we think of everybody else and not us. In the New Testament, some of the most wicked people are the religious professionals, which means that I am worse than you because I should know better and I still sin against God. Paul says you, and that's all of us. It's plural. He says, and you were, and what's the word that he uses there? Dead. You were dead. You say, I'm not dead. I got pants on. I went to church this morning. You were spiritually dead before Jesus. You were, you know, you're physically alive, but you got a a thing that's not functioning, and you are spiritually dead. And a lot of people say, I'm not spiritually dead. I like going into the woods, and I like hanging out with, oh, I just, I'm spiritual. You can be spiritual in that sense and still be dead. Apart from loving Jesus, we are dead. And people don't like this because we want to think that we're spiritual and alive, but apart from Jesus, we are dead. God speaks, we don't hear. God acts, we don't see. God cares, and we don't care. We are dead. Dead until our lives are found in Christ. We are dead. He says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins. See, it just keeps getting worse. It's like, sins, this this is what we keep talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and what Jesus came to do, and raise and die for our sins, and bring us back to life again. And you say, what sins? I'll give you two types of sins. There are sins of omission, and this is where God created us to do certain things and we don't. Like, we're supposed to love Him, we're supposed to serve other people, we're supposed to glorify God, we're supposed to honor His image and other people. But instead, what we do is we love ourselves, and we glorify ourselves, and we honor ourselves, and we give all that God has given us to ourselves. Sins of omission, not doing what we're called to do. And then there are what are called sins of commission, where God says don't, and we break a specific law and do it anyway. I mean, even if you don't know your Bible, we know that certain things are wrong, right? You know, like boy bands and baloney? They're both just wrong. They're just wrong. But it's much deeper than that. When he, this is the ideas of justice and mercy and honoring His image and people. See, sin is rebellion. We are all rebels who fight against God. We're failures who can't even do it right, if, even if we wanted to. Trespasses and sins. Rebels are defiant. Failures usually end up being depressed. Paul says in Romans 6, 11, Be dead to sin and alive to Christ. But we live our lives as if we're dead to Christ and alive to sin. 
And sin is not just what you do. I know you get told this a lot. You need your sins forgiven. Like, what are my sins? They're all the things that you do. Oh, you watched that. You slept with that. You drank light beer. Those are, those are sins. And people think, well, I'll just be a good person. I won't do those things anymore. And I won't need forgiveness because I won't have any sins. But sin is not just what you do. It is who you are. We are inherently broken. In verse 3, Paul says, he calls us objects of wrath. We are broken and we are flawed. We are not in harmony with God. We're like a broken instrument. But humanity was not made this way. Because of sin, we now make broken and bad music. And because, of, because we are dead, we commit these trespasses and sins. And the hope is not to stop committing trespasses and sins. The hope is to stop being dead. And this is, again, why Jesus Christ came. Now, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, this is why counselors' offices are full today. They're full of these wounded people. Cemeteries are full of dead people. It's a war, and a war is waged in here that Paul says on three fronts. The first one he talks about is Satan. And I know people today, that sounds like ancient folklore. Oh, that's just crazy talk. Look at the world, though. Tyranny, starvation, death, abuse, pride, injustice. If this is the effect, what's the cause? I mean, we are a major part of that cause. But if it's just humans, shouldn't we make a little bit of progress somewhere? I mean, we keep trying to fix it, though we are major contributors to it, but it looks like there's an outside force pushing this thing downhill. And Scripture says it's not a force, it is a being. It's a rebellious fallen angel created by God, but not equal to Him. Don't think that everything on this earth can be explained solely by biological beings. We have a spiritual enemy that encourages you and I to participate in our war against God. We have a literal enemy, but you can't blame him for everything. The second threat we fight this on is ourselves. Ourselves. We are not just victims. This is why Paul says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. When Christianity, what we call this is the flesh. That's what we call this. We have an internal broken propensity for sin. It's our condition. I mean, it's not just our physical body, but a predisposition towards rebellion. It's like this. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, right? Do you want good things for them, or do you want them to get pulled over and wreck their car? Second service, one guy in the back saw, death. I mean, at least somebody's honest about it. I mean, we think we're good people. We think we're all the victims. When we get upset or we blow up at somebody, we usually say things like, well, you know, I may have said that, but you made me do it because you did this. And we're always blaming somebody else for it. We do this all the time. The problem is our flesh craves the wrong things. The wages of sin is death. And sometimes we love it so much we kill ourselves with it. God makes some things that are so good. And yet we destroy them. I mean, alcohol. God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. It's a wonderful and good thing. But people drink so much that they lose relationships and they lose their health. They lose their job. They lose their life. They make things like light beer. Just horrible. Sexuality, right? God, you know, naked, no shame. Man and a woman together. She's supposed to be beautiful. And what do we do with it today? You know, booty calls and shacking up and hooking up and pornography. It's what we do. God's supposed to give us the enjoyment of life. You work six, you rest one. What do we do now? We work one, we rest six and complain about the one we have to work. And we get very lazy. Sin is a cancer that's unwilling to relent until it kills the host. The problem is not that it's just out there trying to get in. The book of James says it is in us. We love it, we should not, even though it kills us. The third front the war is fought on is the world. 
And this is the idea, not like everybody out there you're at war with. It's this idea that when the flesh and the enemy work together, it becomes a collective mass. And this is what we call the world, the values that govern our world, where pride, greed, and lust all becomes virtue. Self becomes virtue. And this world system validates sin. I mean, customer service companies, you call them up. If you're nice, you get nowhere, you're mean, and they bend over backwards for you. I have a friend who wouldn't lie at his job and got passed over for promotion after promotion. Why? Because the world systems are at war with God and his children. I mean, you will get told all the time by churches, oh, become a Christian, add Jesus. He's like miracle grow when everything turns green and gets better. When the truth actually is, many times you give your life to Jesus and all hell breaks loose in your life. It's just what happens. Mark Driscoll says it's easier to be the dead fish and float with the current than swim upstream all day long. And that's true. And that's true. I mean, think about this. Love one person in marriage forever. I've been married 22 years this year. And I'll tell you, for my wife, that cannot be easy. Because right? she's got she's to live with this all the time. And I'm like, sometimes I sit there, like last night, it was like 9 o'clock. She's like, I want a McDonald's ice cream cone. And I'm like, I will get in the car and go get you one just because you're so good to me. You know, because you got to live with this. No, it's guilt. Okay? (laughs) That's what it is. I mean, she's really, she's got to live with this. I mean, mean, how about this? Tell the truth even when it costs you everything. I mean, these are hard things. And it can be discouraging because the enemy's out there, the enemy's in here, and they form this entire substructure in which the children of God live within. But we are not just victims. We are rebels. We have made the world the way that it is. And so here's my question. Is God just in being angry at Satan? Is this on? Yes. Okay, good. Just just check it. Satan's bad. Okay? He's bad. All right. Is God just at being angry with the world systems that validate death and destruction and cheating and lies? Yes, it's understandable. When we come to the end of verse 3, we want to suppress it. And he says, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Satan doesn't force anything upon us. He usually gives us what we want. I even think it's actually quite the opposite, that God forces grace and transformation upon us, where Satan gives us what we want, sin and death. Commission, omission, failures, rebels, I am. You are by nature objects of wrath. And if God just shrugged his shoulders and said, oh well, and walked away, we would scream, where is the justice? Like if someone hurts you or someone hurts your kids, you want justice right then. It's why you put a horn in your car. We call it the instant justice button. Justice! There it is. You know, children of wrath. God's anger is not some junior high over-emotional reaction to, you know, the things that we do. It is a reaction to trespasses and sins. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And unless we have a healthy spirit, fear and respect of God, we will understand nothing. When Scripture teaches that God is to be glorified, what that word means is weighty, that God is supposed to weigh most heavily upon us, and yet we live in trespasses and sins. And so God's weight becomes very light, and our own becomes very heavy, and we become very self-centered. And what happens is a lot of people get a very little view of God and a very big view of man. And we get, oh, look how reasonable I am and how smart I am and how wonderful I am. We make ourselves very big. In the Scriptures, it says that God laughs at the scoffers. Because God is very big and man is very little. We must understand the gravity of sin and that it is death. God hates sin. And so Paul starts Ephesians by reminding us that we are all the same. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But now Ephesians 2 verse 4, he says, But God being rich in, what's the word? Mercy. Mercy. You had your Bible open, you know that. Mercy, God being rich, that's the word elios. We were dead. 
And when you are dead, you are dead. You don't move, you don't breathe, you don't walk, you don't talk, dead, dead. But because of God's great mercy, our God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God's mercy made us alive. And if we were some type of amening church, that'd be worth an amen. amen. You were dead. You were far from God. But the God we serve is a God who is rich in mercy, who has compassion for our condition, and moves in action to relieve our suffering. Imagine it's like this. God is up here on this little stage. You know, where would we be? We are as far from God as you could possibly imagine. It'd be like if I walked off the stage and God's there. How far would we be? Like, I'd walk past you guys. I'd walk back to the second tier of heaven, back here in the back, and I'd walk back here through the hallway... It'd be like coming back here past the nursery and the children's rooms and, and even past the lounge where everybody stands in there. And then maybe even by the welcome center. And then we're going all the way outside because it's, it's still just not far enough. It would be like being all the way out here on the far side of the parking lot, even though that isn't even far enough. Hold on. I got a friend named Donald. Like, like this. Hi, this is Donald. I'm reporting from Iowa right now. Um, I can't see the element stage from here. Wait, is that it? No, that's not it. No, I definitely can't see element from here, Aaron. Is this far enough to illustrate your point? It's cold. Really cold. You know, Iowa is where God sticks people he's mad at, right? <laughs> and Donald, he really was in Iowa. I mean, he was, I mean, he's here today, but I mean, he's got that shot of him. I mean, that's, that's the idea. We were as far from God as you could possibly be. That's how far away we were. And yet God, because of his great mercy, has come and saved us. The good news is we have a God who loves us and sought us and is rich in mercy. He identifies with our affliction. He moves into action. Because of his mercy, he made us alive in Christ. William Barclay suggests that this idea of mercy is the same as getting into someone's skin, thinking like they think, feeling like they feel, seeing what they see. It's not just feeling sorry for someone. It's actually getting into their skin. And this is great news, because this is what God did for us in the person of Christ. He got into our skin. We call this the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. He saw what we see. He felt what we felt. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, Therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to, to help those who are being tempted. See, Jesus suffered like us, and I would say probably even worse than us, because he got into our skin, he sympathizes, he empathizes, he understands, he extends mercy to us in our skin. And I think sometimes he must have been so frustrated. The creator of the universe, confined by his own will in human skin. And yet he does this to save us. This is why the Beatitudes go the way they do. Poor in spirit. We understand our condition. We mourn over it. We go to the place where we understand meekness and we're humble about it. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness, which comes out when we understand the mercy given to us and how we then begin to live on the other side of that. We are people who are supposed to also be rich in mercy to others. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10.
Luke chapter 10. Because Jesus, I think this is one of the most brilliant ways he gets us to understand what this mercy looks like. In Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, is a story of what's called the Good Samaritan. It's not, you know, Jesus didn't name a story after the shelter. The shelter named after him, just in case you were wondering. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And I like this because the guy says, What should I do? In the 21st century, we would say, what do I need to believe to inherit eternal life? This guy says, what do I do? It's funny that Matthew chapter 5 is called the Beatitudes, the things, you know, what, what are we living like? What does it look like? Now, you're not saved by your works or anything like that, but it's interesting that it's, it's supposed to be lived out in what we do. Anyway, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, that's the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So if we really love God and our neighbor, and we actually live that way, would that change things in the world today? Of course it would. Of course it would. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So it's a very self-centered question, but it's also a good question, so Jesus answers it. You know, if you actually love God, and it's born out in how you love your neighbor, the question becomes, well, who is my neighbor? And we'd like Jesus to give us a list of like ten people, okay, I'll love them, done, I'm good. But instead, Jesus tells a story. Okay, verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, and when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. These are two people involved in temple worship. And there's a thing in the law that said, you know, if someone's dead, don't touch him and make you unclean. But if somebody was dying and you could help them, you were actually obligated to help them. And yet they walk by on the other side. Verse 33 says, but a Samaritan. And we think, well, of course a Samaritan. The, the shelter's named after the Samaritan. It's good Samaritan. No. What you understand is this is loaded language. A Samaritan. The Jews would be like instantly angry that they even bring a Samaritan into the story. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Long history. I'll give it to you really condensed. Uh, originally, Samaria was considered holy by the Jews because Jacob and Isaac both built altar there, altars there to the Lord. Uh, Jacob eventually digs a well, raises his family there, deeds it to Joseph. And so Israel becomes a nation. About 720 B.C., the Assyrians, who also hated the Jews, come in, they invade, they conquer, and they take two-thirds of those people off to Assyria. They leave one-third there. Assyrians move in, and they live off of these people that, are, that were left in Israel. And so the people who are left there have a question. Do we stay faithful to our religion? Do we stay faithful to our God? Or do we syncretize and mix with this other country and their beliefs? And immediately that's what they did. They mixed themselves with that other country. Second Kings 17 says immediately they did this. So much so that they got involved in child sacrifice. Now, can you imagine? Someone comes in, they haul you off to another country, they leave people behind, they get to stay in their own homes. And those people that got to stay back start committing you know, child sacrifices. And you're living in a foreign country and you're staying true to your God. How would you feel? Where's the justice? That's what you'd say. I mean, imagine we were attacked by the Canadians because they're the only fair people to make fun of anymore. Right? And the Canadians come down and they, and they attack us and they haul off two-thirds of us to the land of pine trees and sap. I know. Impossible, I know, but imagine it happens. Okay? And all of a sudden, the Oregonians start sitting down, you know, all their crappy Canadian TV, you know, with their pantheism and witchcraft and their Oprah and their Dr. Phil. And all of a sudden, what do we do? Do we merge ourselves with that or what do we do? And immediately, that's what they did. 
And so these Samaritans, what they did is they got rid of the Psalms, they got rid of the wisdom literature, but they kept the Torah, and they claimed to be Jews. Now, over time, all these transported Israelites were freed, and they started to come back to their own country. And they're angry, because their neighbors offered their kids up to child sacrifice. It wasn't right. Eventually, over time, you read like Ezra and Nehemiah, they start to rebuild the wall, they start to rebuild the temple. And as they start to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans show up, and they say, hey, we want to help. And the Jews look at them and they say, you can't help, you are scoundrels, you're inbred, you're heretics, you're freaks, you can't touch the temple. And this leads to hostility, obviously, between these two people. So a renegade Jew at that time goes off and he marries a Samaritan woman, and he says, we don't need that temple in Jerusalem, we'll build our own at Mount Gerizim. If you read John chapter 4, that's part of the discussion that takes place in John chapter 4. And so this guy makes a hybrid religion with a different competing temple. This continues for 300 years until the Jews get so angry about this, they march right into Samaria, right up to Mount Gerizim, and they destroy the Samaritan's temple in about 120 B.C. Lots of animosity, lots of anger between these two people. And yet Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Huge implications. But that guy from Al-Qaeda, okay? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went and bound, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whenever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. The enemy puts this guy that was half dead in a ditch on his own animal. The text actually uses 12 verbs to convey what this guy did in action. Poured on oil, put on his animal, took to the end, gave money. 12 different verbs because compassion and action equal mercy. So this is what Jesus says. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him, what's the word? Mercy. The word is Elios, the one who showed him mercy. Exactly. If we love God and we love our neighbor, who's our neighbor? Everyone, including our enemies. See, we're supposed to love everyone, and that includes our enemies. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. What does it look like to get into the skin of your enemy? Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God saved us while we were enemies enemies. God got into our skin and saved us. God first gives us forgiveness. We forgive others. God first gives us mercy. We give mercy to others. So let me ask you a question. Who are your enemies? Who's your enemies? Give me people. Billy down the street. IRS. Okay, there you go. IRS. Okay? Justin Bieber. Okay? Good one. Racist? Second service, someone said, Obama. Other people would say, Bush. You know, back and forth. Who is your enemy? That's the question. See, you're to love them, and you're supposed to get into their skin. If you are a conservative, you get into the skin of a liberal. If you're a liberal, you get into the skin of a conservative, and you think like them, you feel like them, you have compassion on them. You don't just tear them down. You've got to be willing to do something about their condition. By showing compassion and action hand in hand. Because we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, like the Justin Beavers. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
We are the Samaritans. We are the half-dead guy in the ditch. We were the enemies of God. And as bad as you think somebody else's sin is, it is nowhere near a faint shout of how awful your sin stunk before a holy and a righteous God. Romans 5.8, But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Jesus, you see the love and the justice and the mercy of God hand in hand. Scriptures tell you that the wages of sin is death. Well, how can Jesus die if he didn't sin? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died for our sin. Colossians 2.13-15 says, Our sins were laid upon him, our condition of sin, our life of sin. This is why the gospel is good news, because God's justice is met, and God is not a liar. God says, you sin, you die. The wages of sin is death. Period. That's how it works. And yet, who dies for us? Jesus. Exactly. And we receive love and grace and mercy. We can never atone for all of our own sins. This is why in John 19.30, Jesus cries out, It is finished. Paid in full. And I think that is a cry of mercy for his people. Jesus suffered our wrath. We do not have to stand before a God and justify or vindicate ourselves because Jesus took care of all of that. Jesus died and rose and conquered our enemies of Satan, sin, death, flesh, and the world. When Jesus rose, we were in Christ. I think this beatitude has totally been flipped on its head now because of Christ's death and resurrection, because we show mercy, because we have been given mercy. It's kind of like Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. After the cross and the resurrection, the reality is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 13. He says, Bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. You have already been forgiven. When you believe in Christ, your sins are gone. You have been forgiven, so you forgive others around you. We have been shown mercy, and so we show mercy ourselves. We understand that first in the fact that Jesus paid for our sins, compassion and action, he comes as a man, dies for us because we couldn't take care of it ourselves, and he rises, and now we live as a people of compassion and action because of that great mercy. It's why it comes in the Sermon on the Mount the way that it does. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what do we do? We start to live out mercy. That's what we begin to do. Compassion and action. This is why we talk about communion every week. Communion is compassion and action, hand in hand, going together. That's why you take that cracker. Grace Lynn. Her name is Grace. See? It's awesome. Anyway, uh, so you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice like Christ's blood was shed for you and I. Compassion and action, hand in hand, going together. Uh, the band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you to sing these songs. But to take communion. And remember that this is the place where mercy was extended to you. It reminds us of that. So we have some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you're in a spot in your life where you desire some mercy or to understand what that mercy looks like, or maybe you are not a merciful person and you want to learn how to show it to other people, how to better understand that mercy that was first given to you. They would love to pray with you. They would love to talk to you about that. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of that worship. That's why it's there. It's a response to what he has done. So we don't pass the plate.
It's like if you want to give, it's a response. There it is. Um, I don't know if there's any food and stuff in the back or if the people like second service were locusts again and ate it all. Um, but if not, invite somebody out to lunch today and ask these questions and talk about these things and say, you know what? What does compassion and action look like? How has God shown you compassion and action you know, throughout your life? How can we be better at showing that to other people? Because, again, it's not about doing. Doing things doesn't make God love us or like us anymore. But it's a natural outcropping of what he has done. We should be a people who long to live compassion and action, hand in hand going together. Because what it does is it represents who our great God is. He is a God of compassion and action. A God who has given his people great mercy. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be those who live in the understanding of your mercy and your grace. That we would hear the words that you say to us. Not just this morning. But as we walk out of this place and we live lives. That we remember the words that you have said. And we would start to be compassion and action hand in hand. Not because it makes you love us more or like us more, but simply because it is who you called us to live as. Your children representing who you are. So that this world would know the goodness and the greatness of you. Father, too often our natural tendency is to not to display mercy. It's to display this righteous hand of judgment and want everything for us to be made right rather than extending mercy where mercy needs to be extended and so today teach us to be a people that don't overlook sin be a people who understand that even in the midst of it you are a God who extended compassion to us and that we should in turn give that to those around us for you are our great and our good God and in all things we want to lift you up as the world worships you thank you for saving us thank you for giving us mercy